biographical information about him. Um, we know that minor prophets are not minor in their message. Many of them have a major message, but they just were given a shorter book, a shorter uh, number of uh, words to deliver their prophecies, to deliver their message. Some of them had very specific uh, types of judgments that they were prophesying regarding or dealing with, and some were dealing with longer spans of time. But we look, we're going to look tonight at Habakkuk, and then we'll see as uh, we uh, finish up the year and as we look at some Christmas themes and uh, some ideas that I have, uh, we'll see how far we get with some of these minor prophets. But, and Lord willing, we'll get to Zechariah, and we'll look again at the Messiah in Zechariah in preparation even for uh, Christmas and the powerful message and the prophecies regarding the Messiah that are found in the book of Zechariah. But for tonight, we'll look at Habakkuk. And we don't, again, have much as far as biographical information about him. His name means one who embraces. So there are speculations as to why he was given this name, one who embraces. Is it because he embraced the Lord? He trusted the Lord? He was preaching and prophesying of the judgment, even a dialogue with the Lord and asking questions, as we'll learn. Is it because he embraced the Lord and was teaching the people and preaching to the people to embrace the Lord through this time of judgment and then captivity that was going to result from the judgment as the Babylonian Empire moved in and began the different stages of captivity? We're not exactly sure why he was given that name, one who embraces. But nevertheless, that is the meaning of his name. We also see, by looking at the historical context, that he wrote around the time of 640 B.C. to 598 B.C. Some commentators would put him right around 604, 605 B.C. specifically, because in 605 B.C., Babylon defeated Egypt at Carchemish, and already Babylon had defeated Assyria in, at Nineveh in 612 B.C. So you have the Assyrian Empire, 722 B.C., that had moved into the northern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom had no kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The northern kingdom from early on began an idolatrous alternative worship system. We can talk about Jeroboam and his attempt to try to synchronize the worship of Jehovah with idols in a different place. And eventually that would even come out in John 4 with the woman at the well and she was trying to argue with Jesus about the place of worship. But the point is that 722 B.C., because the northern kingdom had become so idolatrous, so immoral, had rejected God in so many ways, the Assyrian Empire moved in and in 722 B.C. conquered the northern kingdom. Now the Assyrian Empire, one of their chief cities was Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, we know Jonah was called 
to go and preach to Nineveh in the city got saved. The, the, the population, by and large, got saved. But sadly, uh, they would reject God even after the great revival from Jonah. They would uh, go back into their idolatry, their immorality. But the Assyrian Empire, by 722 B.C., was very strong, came into the northern kingdom, and conquered. Now, the Babylonian Empire is beginning to rise in strength. By 640 B.C., the Babylonian Empire is beginning to threaten the Assyrian Empire. And in 612 B.C., the Babylonian Empire conquers Assyria when they conquered Nineveh, 612 B.C. 605, they conquered Egypt at Carchemish. The Assyrians had reached out to the Egyptians and tried to get their help. The Egyptians were conquered at Carchemish, 605 B.C. So, we can go back a long ways to conflict in the Middle East, can't we? It gets very complicated. It gets very complex. We could even get into the Ottoman Empire. We could get into the Roman Empire. There are so many power plays. It's almost like a chessboard in that, in that region, back and forth in different power plays. But nevertheless, we know that that land was given to Israel as they conquered those Canaanite nation states. God gave them that land. That land belongs to them. And from what Craig Hartman said, I did not realize this, but when he was explaining the land, he said that Israel only has right now about 10% of what the original British mandate and the Balfour Declaration originally was giving or going to give Israel. They only have about 10% of that. So that's, a, that's another, another story. I don't want to get on too much of a rabbit trail there. But just goes to show you this area of the world and all the back and forth with the different empires. We know that he had watched, likely watched, the reforms of King Josiah and the revival. And then we know that he was observant or witness to the eventual destruction of the southern empire, the first two stages of captivity, 605 B.C., 597. Not sure if he was there to witness the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, but he likely watched the reforms, the revival of King Josiah, and then saw those get swept away under the wicked King Jehoiakim. So then... We know a little bit more about Habakkuk from chapter 3 in verse 19. At the very end of the verse, we see to the chief singer on, what does he say? On my stringed instruments. So he must have had some musical ability that has caused some to think that he was in the liturgical choir, the Levite liturgical choir, but he must have had some ability with stringed instruments. So that would even go along with the fact that this is really more of a, a, a poem. The way it is structured, the way it is written, it is less of a narrative type of writing and more of a Hebrew poetry in the style of Psalms and Ecclesiastes, the poetic books. 
It is written more in that style, and it also involves a dialogue. His ministry would have overlapped to some degree with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah. Obviously not the entire length of all four of those prophets, but some overlap of their ministries as well. So we can see that God was sending prophets, and there are others who uh, we could uh, probably uh, mention who are not the authors, the human authors of uh, inspired books of the Bible, but there are other prophets that we know, such as Nathan with David, and there are other prophets that God sent to Israel, to Judah, to preach. There was great warning of coming judgment. There was great warning of what they had been taught in the law, if they turned to idolatry, if they turned to the sins of the people, the land, what did God promise he would do? He'd bring judgment. He would take them into captivity. He would allow for the foreign nations to conquer them. And these prophets were coming. And in some sense, yes, there were prophecies, predictive prophecies, but there were also the already revealed truths, the divine truth already revealed that they were being reminded of that this is what God promised if you continue on this path of idolatry and immorality and violence and all the wickedness. If you continue in this rejection of God, there will be judgment. And that was one of the messages of Habakkuk that he would preach to the southern kingdom, warning them of the coming judgment should they continue on this way. And we see with Josiah, he was there more than likely and saw those reforms and the revival there, and then with the subsequent, queen, subsequent kings, eventually with Jehoiakim, those reforms were swept away. Now it's interesting, in Habakkuk 1 and verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Only three times is a prophet identified as such in the title of his book. Okay? Haggai and Zechariah also in their opening, in the title of their book, their books, do Haggai and Zechariah also mention that they are prophets. And he was the only pre-exile or pre-exilic prophet to do so. So just a little bit of interesting facts about Habakkuk. I don't know if this helps at all, but a map... I'm a little bit of uh, a map uh, freak. I don't know what you want to call me. I love maps, and to this day, I enjoy various maps. I do miss the days of the accordion maps, the fold-ups. Those were so much fun. Now, they weren't fun when you were lost, and you were having to put them out on your steering wheel after you pull over, right? You pull over, and then you get it out, right? Sometimes we didn't even do that. But I know some of the young people, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But those, those fold-out maps are so much fun. And uh, they are uh, enjoyable to, to look at. And you can go and you go to Google Images, which is where I got this one. And you can look at all kinds of different maps. But you can see the Assyrians and Nineveh up there to the top of that map. And then you see Babylon to the south, and then over, of course, into the Middle East, and you see the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar II, Nabonidus, and Belshazzar. We're more familiar with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar because of the book of Daniel, 
but you can see the area that the Babylonian Empire uh, conquered and, and influenced and controlled. And so just a little bit of perspective there. So as we continue in our understanding of Habakkuk and a little bit of the outline of this book, we will see that his, again, as I mentioned, his writing style is more along the lines of a poetic book. This may have even something to do with his musical ability and some of that musical ability and artistic ability that sometimes we see it manifest in a poetic or that kind of style of writing. And there's a dialogue. Now, you think about it, Song of Solomon has poetry, but there's dialogue. There's different speakers back and forth, similar type of style. So when people talk about the Bible and they, they, they try to be critical of Scripture, I find it fascinating that God used the talents, the personality, he incorporated those abilities while he gave his inspired word. He, he kept Haggai, excuse me, Habakkuk's, he, gave Habak, he kept Habakkuk's talent, ability, his artistic, his poetic ability, he kept that intact while he gave him the word of God, the very God-breathed, the inspired revelation of God. He kept that form. He, I love how the Bible is not just a bunch of random sayings. The Quran is really just a bunch of random sayings. There's not a lot of organization to it. I know that there are ways in which it can be organized, but it's, it doesn't have the historical narrative and the type of literary skill that you see with the Bible. These were Educated, and sometimes not, but these were people, these were individuals with talents, with abilities, like you and me, who God used. We sometimes will take a Habakkuk, we'll take a, a prophet, we'll take some of these human authors and we'll elevate them in our minds, won't we? Oh, they must have been some intellectual scholar with several letters after their name. They must have been in some place of great educational instruction. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with getting a good education, uh, going on to, to campus and seeing some of the things that we see in the classroom, uh, some of the things, not so much this year, but in years past, some of the equations that were written on the board <laughs> in the classroom and uh, the complex engineering type of uh, equations and all that and just what little bit Josiah and I are doing in physical science on chemical reactions. I mean, it's, it's over my head. But we're having fun, aren't we, Jesse? We're enjoying physical science. <laughs> Dan's over here shaking his head. Jesse's over here saying no. But here's a... Here's, what my, my point is, yes, does God use educated people like a Paul? Sure. But he also takes just normal, ordinary people like you and me. And he takes a Habakkuk, and he, he has a man who is probably, likely, in the Levitical 
tri in the tribe of Levi, helping in the service of the tabernacle, and he is musically talented, has the ability with stringed instruments, and he gives him a poetic book to write by the inspiration of God. And he's also a prophet, a preacher. So just a little bit of maybe background there. So what else can we learn about Habakkuk? He had a burden. And if there's anything that I could say I could identify with Habakkuk about, not, not, not that this is about me at all, but just as a preacher, as a pastor, there is a burden, and I don't, this is not a complaint. Don't take this as a complaint at all. But when Paul talks about the care of all the churches, in the ministry, there is a burden. Any pastor who cares at all for his people is going to carry a burden. And there is a burden that Habakkuk carries for his people. And again, as, as a pastor, I, I can relate uh, to Habakkuk a little bit in this regard. Because there is a burden with the ministry. And I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm saying that as, yes, there's the busyness of the ministry and the administrative and the phone calls and all the, and the hospital visits. And that, you know, it's, it's the desire to see the people of the church grow in the Lord. It's the desire to see people have victory over sin. It's the desire to see souls saved. Yes, there's prayer for healing. Yes, there's the burden of watching someone like Yvonne or others um, being in the hospital and seeing tubes and trachs and people who are, are literally in the, the final hours of, of life. Yes, those, there's a burden there as well. But there's something about wanting to see God's people, to see people in the church grow, to have victory, to, to overcome sin, to see our young people grow up to do God's will, to see their lives be used by God. There are so many casualties in our world today, aren't there? There are so many negativities. There are so many bad Stories, if I can say it that way, of sin defeating people and them not getting the victory. Those, those become burdens. Because I don't want to see anybody get caught up in sin. There's a burden in my own life, in my own heart, about my own personal holiness. And I get up here and I preach and I come home sometimes on Sunday nights and I'm burdened for my own. I just preached and what about myself and God's working on me before I ever get behind the pulpit and even afterward. But the burden that a preacher has for his people that God has called him to. Habakkuk had that burden. Notice what he says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. That word burden is sometimes also translated oracle. So here is an oracle. Here is a declaration. And that declaration comes with warning. It comes with a burden. It comes with a desire for that truth to be realized in the people that he is preaching to, to result in changed lives. To result in the turning from idolatry, the turning from the immorality, the turning from the wickedness, the turning from the covetousness and the violence. To, to them getting their eyes off of the wicked Canaanite countries around them and all of their false gods and all of the immorality and the sensuality. 
preaching to them, saying, turn your eyes away from the world and the wickedness and put your eyes on the Lord. There's a burden. There's an oracle. But then he has to struggle in his own personal life with some questions because he knows that there is coming judgment upon God's people if they don't turn from their sin. But then when it's revealed to him that there will be an ungodly, wicked, pagan nation that will be used to bring God's judgment on his people. Now there's another conflict in Habakkuk's spirit. How can God use a wicked nation to execute his judgment? Why wouldn't God just purge and purify his people? These are questions that Habakkuk is going to wrestle with. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save? Or, will, or it's actually a, an exclamation, thou wilt not save. Verse 3, why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. It's a burden. There's a little bit of negativity here. Habakkuk is struggling in his spirit. A couple of major questions here. We see that it seems, at least in his mind, that God is indifferent to prayer, that God is insensitive to sin and suffering. And then in the next section that we didn't read quite yet, God determines a judgment. So Habakkuk's burdened. Burdened about what could be coming for God's people. Burdened about a pagan nation, a wicked, ungodly nation coming and bringing judgment. Now, what has happened in Israel has been absolutely appalling. But I heard Craig Hartman in that interview a couple of, or a few weeks ago, he, he mentioned, he said, one of the things that we have to admit to is that Hamas, as ugly and as wicked and as pagan and as violent and as savage and barbaric as they are, they're inflicting, in some ways, another judgment on God's people who have rejected him as the Messiah. It's a sobering thought. It's not what we like to think about. But he had to admit to that, that there's only a small remnant and obviously we're burdened for more to be saved. And, for, and Craig is, is burdened for kinsmen according to his flesh, his own flesh, his own, his own people. And he talked about the, the, the minority, the remnant, and hoping that there will be more in his prayer request that I think I, I sent out or I read some of them. He's burdened for Israel right now that their hearts might be tender. Habakkuk is similarly experiencing the same consternation in his spirit as we can only imagine what went on on October 7th. And it, I can't even describe some of the things I've heard. That is, in, in, in one sobering sense, another evidence of God's judgment on his people as he's trying to get them to turn to him as the true Messiah. We know that there is a day in the tribulation. Well, it will be even worse. And this is just a harbinger of what 
is going to come that's going to be even worse, especially at the midpoint of the tribulation and uh, the great tribulation the last three and a half years. Habakkuk is struggling with that. He's concerned with the, na- the national corruption within, and he's concerned about the international invasion by Babylon that is coming. I'm going to close with a fairly long quote from a commentary. I thought that uh, this particular commentator put it very well. So I'd like to close with this. No wonder Habakkuk looked at all the corruption and asked, why doesn't God do something? That's essentially in the first four verses kind of what he's saying. Why aren't you doing something? When we know it's the stubborn heart of man. We know it's the wickedness of man's heart. We know it's man in his rejection of God and not turning in repentance and faith and confessing, confessing their sins and getting right with God. It's ultimately man's fault. It's not God's fault. But the commentator, he, he says, No wonder Habakkuk looked at all the corruption and asked, Why doesn't God do something? Godly men and women continue to ask similar whys, don't we? Godly men and women continue to ask similar whys in a world of increasing international crises and international corruption, as well as internal corruption. Nation rises up against nation around the world, and sin abounds at home. World powers aim an ever-increasing array of complex nuclear weapons at each other while they talk of peace. World War III seems incredibly imminent. In this commentary, this commentator wrote this in 1985. While the stage is set for a global holocaust, an unsuspecting home audience fiddles a happy tune. The nation's moral fiber is being eaten away by a playboy philosophy that makes personal pleasure the supreme rule of life. Hedonism catches fire while homes crumble. Crime soars while the church sours. Drugs, divorce, and debauchery prevail, and decency dies. Frivolity dances in the streets. Faith is buried. In God We Trust has become a meaningless slogan stamped on corroding coins. In such a world of crisis and chaos, Habakkuk speaks with clarity. This little book is as contemporary as the morning newspaper. Now we would say the morning internet headlines because you don't find very many newspapers. But I thought what he said is exactly to point. I hope as we take some time and go through this little book that it will be an encouragement to us, that it will strengthen our faith and it will strengthen our resolve to continue to live for God faithfully and continue to stand up for what is right and live in obedience to the word of God, to our faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you, Lord, for our Kids for Truth. Thank you for your people. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be burdened for the lost. Help us, Lord, to be burdened for our own lives and our own homes and to live faithful, obedient lives and continue to stand up for the truth of the Word of God and to boldly proclaim the truth in love. But, Lord, help us to speak what is sound doctrine, Help us, Lord, to live according to that truth. And we pray that you will bless us now as we go about our, uh, the rest of the week. And we pray for your protection as we travel home. 
and continue, Lord, to guide and direct in our lives and bring us back together, uh, Lord, on Sunday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you so much for being here, and hope that you have a great evening and a great rest of the week. We look forward to being back again early next week to, 